now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday here on the Steve Day Show. It's a Theology Thursday on the podcast here on Westwood One, powered by CRTV. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. We have a special presentation coming up this Theology Thursday. We're going to tell you about that in just a moment. But first, gentlemen, I mentioned we're powered by CRTV. Let's give the audience a little taste of what's coming up later today at CRTV. Todd, what do you want them to be looking forward to? Washing condoms. Yeah, that's apparently a thing in uh, some places in America. It never dawned on you that when you fully embrace a Darwinian worldview, you fulfill it. You ever that ever dawned on you? Like when you when you fully embrace the notion that you are nothing more than an animal with a slightly more evolved uh, cognitive decision making ability. That's exactly what you, in essence, become. Have you ever noticed that, Todd? Yeah, feces flingers, basically. Yes. Yes. In the feces cage, flingers the that, that, that uh, understand complex languages. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is a thing, guys. I mean, the, the only reason the CDC is warning you not to reuse your condoms, they would not have to warn people unless what, guys? People. People were doing no. it. No. People were doing no. it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I've got a real phobia. I can't sit in a hot seat. Like, if someone's been sitting in a seat and it's really warm, <laughs> I can't sit there. Where are we going with you this? Just, yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. There's just like yeah. an uncomfortable, you know, to me. You also don't allow leftovers in your house. I don't. And here we I, are. I, all leftovers can... are thrown away. That's why every trash day we look like hoarders. We throw everything away. I can't stand leftovers. All right? But... I, I mean, there's just an uns- there's an uncomfortable feeling when I sit in a chair that someone else has sat in for a long time and it's hot. There's just an uncomfortable feeling to me. It's unsettling. It's like I'm sitting in them. You know? It's like they're still there. They left some of themselves behind. I, I get it because I'm unsettled when I sit next to you and you talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> now? Now do reusing reusing condoms. What do you think? You know that's that, a that's a psychosis, man. That that's that's a psych. I don't know what else to tell you. That's dude. That's that's the point when the crowd outside of Lot's house is like, for real. <laughs> that's when the, that's now when the crowd. That, that's this is that's too much for the that's too much for the crowd at Lot's house. That's the, that's where the crowd at Lot's house is like. You know what we're tapping out. We're done. I just think you know. I think they were moved. Uh, by the recent news cycle and the fact that way too many straws were being thrown into the ocean, they said, you know, we got to reclaim these things. We just can't be throwing these away willy-nilly. They've got a little bit more shelf life than I've given them credit for. Who's got the job of washing those out, do you think? Is that, one, is that another one of those jobs Americans won't do? So we need to import more illegal aliens to wash out our condoms. It's like that scene in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, when the the guy is just making a pile of manure with his hands. It's that guy. It's his job. Can you guys hear that? 
It's the sound of probably around a hundred people typing. I've really enjoyed your content over the last yes, year. Yes, but you crossed a line, yes, Buster. It, it, it's, it's the sound of of Westwood One typing out a cease and desist yes. letter. <laughs> I love how we went here. We talked about uh, impeaching Rosenstein, perhaps a new Speaker of the House, but for the last five minutes, we've been talking about washing out condoms. Because this was an official government statement yesterday. Yeah. Aaron, what stood out to you on the show? You know, people don't like us talking about that. Complain to the government. Complain to the That's CDC. Right. We're victims here. Yes, exactly. Um, what stood out to me? Um, <laughs> you know, pretty much everything. It was just that great of a show. Uh, but particularly when we got into uh, Trump's messaging on tariffs and how he had a win. And it, when kind of rolling out this win yesterday on in, in the Rose Garden, he stumbled across the messaging that should have been his from the very beginning. And uh, we kind of get into what that was. And um, and if you watch the show, you'll 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 know. And just like we did yesterday on the economy, we tried to have an adult conversation today on Rod Rosensteinstein. I'm just calling him both because I'm not sure which it is, depending on which channel you watch. Uh, it is referred to either way. Uh, we tried yet again today to have an adult conversation on that topic because we are we are gambling. There's at least nine adults left in America, at least nine. Speaking of adult commentary, I'm surprised you just kind of blew right past, even though it was in Aaron's montage. The uh, generic ballot, Democrats versus Republicans. Care to comment? Well, a, about a month ago on uh, our day's group roundtable on Sarah yeah. TV, I predicted that this would be the surrender caucus summer. Yes, you Republicans did. would not fight on anything. Anything. And that's even before we knew Anthony Kennedy was going to retire, right? And they punted on, they punted on putting uh, Amy Coney Barrett up there, which would have absolutely picked a fight. They've punted on everything. And I said, once they punt on everything, by the time we get to the end of the ju- end of July, that you'll see the Democrats will be up in double digits again on the generic congressional ballot. And what have we seen? They're up by double digits again on the, the generic ballot after a summer of uh, surrender caucus. And the Republicans are up there talking about you know surrendering, trying to figure out a way to surrender on amnesty. Paul Ryan is trying to sell you out on amnesty before he leaves the speakership. He's trying to figure. He's like Clint Eastwood right now in every which way but loose, except there's not that really cute orangutan. He is doing everything he can. He's every which way but loose right now, trying to screw you on amnesty as like his last act on the way to handing over the speaker's gavel to Nancy Pelosi, which will be the end result of screwing us on this, I promise you. There is no no cultural grievance. I know we have the motto. You're even wearing the original mock-up of the shirt today. I promise you, I, I don't do this very often anymore because when I used to do it, I used to be like really good at it. I'm, and I haven't been that good at doing this over the last year. Okay. But as squeamish as I am on making declarations, I will make one right now. And I'm hundred percent confident in it. There is no, there is no cultural flashpoint, not uh, short, short of Democrats Known leaders, Pelosi, Schumer, burning an American flag while wearing the Mexican flag. Nothing short of that. Possible. <laughs> it's true. He ain't lying. Yep. All right, but I'm setting the bar high. Nothing short of that. No cultural flashpoint short of that. That will make up the ground of Republicans selling out their base on amnesty. If they do that, there's no point in having an election.
Yeah, I it's agree. Ova. Not over. Ova. Ova. It's like it's like Mariano Rivera is warming up in the bully, and we don't need him to come out. The other team knows they lost because they're behind in the eighth, and he's warming up, so they know the game is over. They're already thinking about who's tomorrow's starter. And they're up there right now trying to figure out how to do it again. What was it our very own Daniel Horowitz tweeted out today? You know, while conservative media is obsessed with, okay, with, what's her, I always forget her Alexandria name. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez, thank yeah. you. While conservative media is obsessed with Ocasio-Cortez, the Republicans up there on Capitol Hill right now are trying to pass her immigration policy. Yeah. And he's right. So, I mean, if they do this, it's over. Over. It ain't just like Nick Saban handed Gus Malzahn his playbook. He gave him his roster, too. Said, hey, take my defensive lineman while you're at it. Let's see what happens. I'm probably going to get my ass kicked. That's probably what's going to happen because now you know my plays and you have my best position. That's what they're trying to do. So we'll see if they can pull it off. Would you say regarding the generic ballot, I know we should ask this question if, even if it was flipped, you always had to take generic ballots, especially this far out, with a grain of salt. Yeah. But, but there was a certain amount of institutional inertia involved about how we understood midterm elections and how things tended to go. But would you say that they are perhaps as flimsy as ever again in our adult lifetime in terms of what what this is probably something closer to They're, half? They are flimsy, but the methodology is not flimsy. Uh, the polls were not wrong in 2016. We've done this right, right. a million times. I'd be stunned just as I'd be stunned if Republicans could recover from selling us out on amnesty, I would be stunned if we're sitting here on September 26th or October 26th and the Democrats lead in the generic ballot as more than like seven or eight points. Correct. I'd be stunned. Correct. I mean, when, when, when more people, people, voters will come home, the gap will close. All right. And I think you should also, when you look at the generic ballot, because I was only talking about what I expected the Republicans to do this summer, which was poo. All right. I wasn't making a projection of what I thought would happen on November the 6th. Okay, because uh, there's because I I'm a, I'm an absolute believer in whoever's dumbest last loses. I just think whoever's dumbest last loses is canceled out when you quit. Like when you quit in the game, you're like we're not playing anymore. Yeah, we're just handing you the game. That's what Republicans caving on amnesty is. They, they they just quit in the middle of the game. As long as the game remains has two competing teams, even if one team is competing poorly, but, but is not playing a dumb move. If, well, depends when, when civilization it's, is on the line. If you want, if you want Trump impeached or not, then not playing is a great move. Well, you know, actually, no, because I've submitted all along that the Republicans could decide not to play and still win because yeah. of how dumb the Democrats might but be. They, while playing. not to play is not the same as surrendering. That you, yes, yes. yes. handing the other side your best players and your playbook is yeah. a surrender. Calling a, having a crap game plan where you're just running the ball for three downs and punting it, you know, maybe a de facto surrender, but there's still a chance in that situation. One of your guys up front could hit a block, the other guy, the other team could overrun the hole, and your guy runs to daylight for a touchdown because you're still hitting somebody. You're still on the field. When you leave the field, you can still have an immaculate reception. Yes, yeah, yes. when you leave the field, that can't happen. And giving the Democrats amnesty in an election year is leaving the field. To me, that cancels out whoever's dumbest last loses. You're just, we don't want to, we're, we don't want to play. We're not, when it's not that we're competing, we're not even playing. We're not even on the field. That's what I'm saying. But I would also say, unless that happens, one thing I believe, and this is just a hypothesis of mine, but I think it will be proven true. I do think the generic congressional ballot number 
is not as meaningful as it's been in past years, and here's why. The electorate is it, everybody keeps saying the electorate's polarized. That's true, but it's not it's not as it's not the best definition. It, it's like it's tr- it, the, a good translation is Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. A better one is actually, or a more precise one maybe is a better way of saying it is he says it's a it is accomplished. Okay, and that distinction can mean can 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 doesn't have isn't a distinction with a difference as much as it's more sufficient explanation well, because you can be finished with something and not accomplish yes, it. Yes, yes. So in this case. Polarization doesn't mean the same as balkanization, right? The generic congressional ballot can work like the the popular vote polling, meaning the popular vote polling almost nailed. I think it was off by six tenths of a point. That's incredible. How much Hillary's margin was in the elect, in the in the popular vote nationally? That's that's you can't do. I mean that's that's nailing it. All right, but because the country's so balkanized, because so much of her vote is concentrated. In limited pockets of the country, which you win 15% of the counties in the U.S., it's not, you can't just prorate that nationally the way you could in the past. Right. And the same thing is true with a congressional ballot. So I would say, for example, if the Democrats are, if, if the polls are as accurate right now as they were in 2016, if the Democrats have a 12 point lead, I'd say it's more like eight or nine. And if they have an eight or nine point lead, I'd say it's more like five or six. And if they have a five or six point lead, I'd say it's more like two or three. And it's because of the balkanization of the electorate. Pockets of people are living with other pockets of people that are likely going to vote the same way. Now, where there is an exception to that, there aren't too many battlegrounds left in America anymore. Where there is really an exception to that are rural states or states that have high or dense rural communities. Wisconsin. Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota. Trump won all of those but Minnesota that I just mentioned. And that's why there's so much focus on these tariffs. Because if if those don't work, and you know, you have 33 counties as the they, they had me on opposite of progressive, and I forgot about the stat. I was glad that he mentioned it. I was on with him on MSNBC today. 33 of the counties Trump won in 2016 in Iowa were won by Obama in 08 and 012. Which means you don't have to disappoint a lot of people in those counties. They flip the other way. And if they flip the other way this year, you lose the governorship in Iowa. You lose the legislature in Iowa. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why I think the electorate is still very volatile. That's why I'm a firm believer in whoever's dumbest last loses. Unless the Republicans decide we surrender. We quit. We're leaving the field. And that's what amnesty would be. Well, if you want to watch our show today on CRTV, CRTV.com is how you can go and watch not just our show, but the great one, Mark Levin, every show at CRTV. And if you use my name, Dace, as a promo code, you will get a discounted subscription to all of those shows. How discounted? It's like a quarter a day. It's actually less than that. It's like 24 cents a day. All right. A quarter a day will get you every show we do here at CRTV each and every day. CRTV.com, promo code Dace. All right. For Theology Thursdays, you guys know I was gone last week. Went and spoke in Moscow, Idaho at a national youth conference called Called, trying to equip the next generation of Christian cultural leaders. And the talk I gave, I tried to keep it very practical. The Ten Commandments of Cultural, or the Ten Commandments for the Culture Warrior. 
the Ten Commandments for the Culture Warrior. We're going to let you listen into that talk. It's just about an hour. So this will be a long podcast, probably one you'll want to pause and come back and finish later on. But we thought you would be intrigued to hear what I shared with the next generation of believers. So I believe in loving my neighbor as I love myself. And as the great prophet Terrell Owens once said, I love me some me. Um, So because of that, assuming many of you guys did not know who I was, I took the liberty of wearing my name tag. All right. So that is not a tacky sign. I mean, what kind of a middle-aged guy wears his own company swag in public that's really tacky and lame? I really just did that so you guys would know who I was. And also because it's tacky and lame. Um, I want to warn you about what you're about to hear. The last time I was asked to address a group of people your age, um, are you guys familiar with Teen Pact? Ever heard of that? Yeah. My wife will remember this. They had me they had me speak at our state capitol once. You know, you guys go to all the states, all 50 states, right? You observe the state legislature and figure out, get to meet your local politicians and figure out how the political system works. And, you know, I was there with them the entire day and I was watching um, how they were trying to equip you guys in the political system. And I thought they did a lot of great work, but I thought something was missing. Reality. So when I was the last speaker, um, I got up in front of all these kids in my home state of Iowa, and I said, so, you know, you guys got a chance to meet our state's governor? And they said, yeah. And I said, you guys went over to the state legislature across the street, and you got to watch public policy being debated? And, and they said, yeah. And I'm like, so you guys think you have a pretty good handle and grip on how the political system works? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, so I'm just curious, over the lunch hour, did they take you down to 801 Grand, which is the big swanky steakhouse back home in Des Moines, did they take you down to 801 Grand and let you watch lobbyists buy your legislators $500 a plate steak and martini lunches? Did they do that? Dude, it got quiet. (laughs) Silent. And I said, well, with all due respect, then I think they probably haven't shown you how politics really works at all. See, one of the things I think we have done wrong in the Christian community, and I say this as someone who didn't come from the Christian community, I got saved in 2003. I was 30 years old. And my wife and I have homeschooled our kids. Our oldest is 17. Uh, She is involved in community theater and a lot of performance art where she gets a chance now to interact with a lot of kids from a completely different world and moral view. And so we've had a chance to sort of see this. We were the other kids growing up. We were the kids that events like this were trying to equip you to reach. We were those kids. And then we joined the other team while having kids. And we've sort of raised our kids as you've been raised. But one of the things that I think we haven't really done a good job of, and I see this as someone that has worked in the political arena from school board races. The last campaign I worked on was the Ted Cruz presidential campaign. I met a gal here from Texas, came up and talked to me. I think her name was Terry. Okay, so I've worked on numerous political campaigns in my career or consulted with them. And one of the things I can tell you is that life is not a theoretical process. And if you don't know how to do what you believe, once you get out of this bubble and out there, it won't matter what you believe. Jesus didn't say by their perfect systemic theology you will know them. That's not what he said. 
said, by their fruit, you will know them. How do we do what we believe? What is the plan? The great prophet Mike Tyson had a famous saying in the heyday of his boxing career. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. What's our plan? How do we do this? How do you take the message you heard before me and go out there and do what's on that sign? How do you do it? Now, one of the things that I've done in my career is I've been on the front lines of trying to do this in the political arena. And I've learned a lot of valuable lessons because I've made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> all right? So I'm like an expert. I'm like the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> right? Because nobody knows more about winning than if you, if you follow the Cleveland Browns, do the opposite of what they do, right? <laughs> do the opposite. That works, all right? So I'm going to teach you to do or the best I can in the two talks we're going to have today to do the opposite of the mistakes me and the people around me with our worldview when we've, gone, when we've gone into the world and on the front lines of the culture war, the political arena, the mistakes that we have made. And I'm going to give you what I call the Ten Commandments of the Culture Warrior, okay, of culture warfare. We're going to go through the first half or so in this talk, and then this afternoon we'll go through the rest and I really want to leave time for questions because my favorite thing is taking off-the-cuff questions on one condition, all right? Snotty questions go to the front of the line. I really like snotty questions, okay? <laughs> However, I will often return snotty questions with a twice-as-snotty answer, so be warned, all right? Okay. And that's biblical, right? That's biblical. We see Jesus do that in the Gospels, right? All right, so here's the first commandment. For when you leave here and you go out there and you try to do what we believe, here's the first commandment. Prioritize people over, over ideology. Jesus died for sinners, for people, not for an ideology. Now let's make sure, because one of the things I struggle with in my career is on one hand, everybody tells me I'm too blunt and I need to be nicer. On the other hand, people tell me, well, what did you mean by that? Let me translate what I thought you said. Uh, okay. So I'm too blunt, but you, you think you need to interpret what I meant. <laughs> Which one is it? Okay. So let me make sure as we go through this, don't add anything to what I said. The word ideology is the key here. I didn't say theology. That's not the word I used. I used ideology. I used that word on purpose. Okay, because there's an overarching theology, obviously. That's what's going to drive you to go into the world. Without that theology, we're not sitting here. There's no point to this conversation. That theology comes from Christ, the Word made flesh. That's where that theology comes from. So I am, because of the audience I'm speaking to here today, I am counting on the correct, rightly divided theology being baked into the cake. Meaning, if I have to show you what that is. Joe needs to come back up here. He's more qualified than me. And we need to start over again this week, okay? So I'm assuming you know that. You have that down as much as maybe you can at your age group. So this isn't about theology. It's about the ideology. What are the ideas we're trying to put into practice? People, I had to learn this the hard way. I'm still learning it. People aren't ideas. People aren't constructs. Sometimes great men fall, sometimes bad men rise. 
Sometimes a lout like Winston Churchill, when pressed up against history's cliff, rises to the occasion when they just tried to pawn off the job to him because nobody liked him. They figured they were at the end of the empire. They would all be speaking German soon. So we'll just put this on his lap, let history blame him, and we'll walk out of here scot-free and negotiate the best deal we can with the Nazis. Lo and behold, this former lout who had switched political parties, nobody really liked, the system hated, ends up being the vehicle by which God uses to help save Western civilization. This happens throughout history. People are complicated mechanisms. There will be men, myself included, who will stand in this pulpit right here and they will give you the word of God in a way that will inspire and encourage and equip you. And then they will go home and struggle with their thought lives. We're complicated. We're not a formula. We're not an algorithm. We're people. And yet as messy and as complicated as we are, as convoluted as we are, Jesus stood up on that cross until it was finished, until it was accomplished for us. Not for an ideology, not for conservatism, not for libertarianism, not for liberalism, not for postmodernism, not for modernism, not for any ism. He did it for you and you and for me. And let's not forget for them. See, motive is key. I, I've been asked before, what is love? And I've heard a lot of pastors say, because Paul says, without love, we're nothing. I've heard a lot of pastors in my time say, love is an action verb. I think it's something even more fundamental than that. See, I think love is a motive. I think love is your motivation. Why do you do what you do? The same God that said to the people of Israel, you're my ultimate urban renewal program. You will go into the land and cleanse it. Same motivation he had for telling them that was the same motivation he had for taking all the sins of all the people in the world upon himself through his son at the cross. The same motivation, love. Love is a motivation. And that's really what this first commandment speaks to. We have to remember what our motivation is. Love. We will confront because we love we will offer mercy because we love. We will offer grace because we love. We will correct error because we love. We will provoke because we love. We will protect because we love. A lot of times in the political arena that I work, I see this ideological breakdown in the blue and red camps. The, the left wants to be judged on their, on their, on their intentions. Well, you know, I intended to stop hunger. I bankrupted all of Western civilization and turned us all into a debtor continent, but my intentions were good, so don't hold me accountable. Okay? The other side will say, well, it's about results. Just about results. It doesn't matter that we've, we're on our ninth story today about payoffs to porn stars from the president. If the economy grows at 4%, we don't care. Results. We're going to make the trains run on time. It's all about results. See, I think the kingdom of God rejects both of those. Those are false choices. And I can promise you, once you leave here and get into the adult world, the number one thing the enemy is going to try to do to you on a daily basis, if you want to do more than fire a squirt gun at hell, is he's going to try to corner you with false choices all of the time. You have to learn to reject false choices. That's a false choice. 
I mean, I could look at my own upbringing. I had a very abusive stepfather. He also taught me how to stand up to myself or for myself. He also taught me to uh, be bold, to confront people who confront me. But a lot of times he taught me from a bad premise because I had to learn those things to defend myself and my mom from him. So he could, look at, he could look at the man God has made me today and he could say, yeah, I, I, I went junction boys on you because that's how we made a man out of you. We made you tough. Look at the results now. You're married to the same woman for 20 years. You have three kids. You have a homeschool caricature at your house. It worked. That's, that's what a lot of conservatism says today. doesn't matter how wretched we were on the way there. If the end result's good, then it's good. See, I think the kingdom of God, we're judged by our motivations. Why did we do what we do? Whom did we do this for? Choose ye this day, what's the rest of the line? Whom you will serve. What is your motivation? Check your motivations all the time. And remember, we're dealing with people, not constructs. Wrongful ideologies, communism, Socialism, ideologies that have literally killed millions of people, should be condemned in the harshest and sternest of words. I'm talking like Paul saying to Simon Barjona, You are a son of the devil. Because literally, that level of existential fate is being tempted when these sorts of wrongful ideologies are adopted corporately by a culture. But within those ideologies, you will have people who are people of sincere conviction that would give you the shirt off their back. They're just wrong. They don't maybe even understand what it is they're truly buying into. And I'm reminded of a story I heard the late Walter Martin, the original Bible answer man tell at the end of his life. I was listening to him on a podcast. Man, I've told this story in almost every talk I've given at a in a ministry or a ministry conference because it cut me to the quick. It was, I was like donkey and Shrek. You cut, me to the, you cut me deep, Shrek. You cut me deep when I heard this, okay? So Walter Martin's telling this story and he's doing an apologetics uh, conference right out of Kingdom of the Cults. And he gets to the chapter on, he's doing his presentation, the chapter on, um, on Mormonism. And he is destroying the LDS church. Like, there's like not any flesh left on the bones. I mean, it's like, I think it was Tyndale, right? The Catholic church burned, his at, burned him to, at the stake, then dug him up to burn his ashes again just to make sure we got him, okay? I mean, there was nothing left. And there was an LDS young man in the crowd. And he stood up to challenge Walter Martin at this conference. Dude, you don't tug on Superman's cape. Come on now. You're gonna, you're gonna step to the Bible answer man in front of like other people. Well, what do you think happened? 187, a theological 187 happened, guys. It did not go well. They go out for a break afterwards. Walter Martin goes into the restroom. This young man is there. And this young man is crying. And see, he sang the same Christmas carols we sang. He went to the same youth groups in town with his high school and school friends that everybody else goes to. Nobody ever told him at all about the questionable lineage of Smith's gold plates. Nobody told him any of this stuff. He never heard it before in his life. 
And he had gone to college, joined a campus youth ministry, had a sincere conversion, and he just heard Walter Martin tell him in front of hundreds of people, you're a heretic. And it crushed him. And Martin said that he learned a very valuable lesson that day. You can win the battle but lose the war. Let us remember the people we encounter no matter how wrong they may be in their thoughts, their beliefs, or their behaviors, Jesus died for them. And I spent a lot of time on that very first one because I can promise you guys almost every mistake I have made in my career, it's because of this number one right here. Number two, never violate the chain of command. What is the chain of command when you get out into the world? Who is ultimately in charge? Right, so I, I'll run into all of our theological camps in the political arena. And it's funny, I'll run into all the post-millennials. I'm gonna start with you guys first because we are at Doug Wilson's church. Let me pick on the home team first, okay? So it's, it's amazing, I'll run into post-millennials who will tell me, be, even though you literally believe in a doctrine that says the church will be triumphant in history like no candidate's ever good enough. Somebody's always wrong, somebody's never perfect enough. You know these people, they're the ones who, Calvin is the avatar on their Facebook wall. Okay? Now, I love Calvin. He didn't die for my sins, and no one's ever gone to the church of John Calvin. Okay? So, like, no one's ever good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. What's, and, and, and uh, what's the chain of command? Who's ultimately in charge? Do you believe that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof or not? And then I'll run to the amillennialists. And they love their Augustinian two kingdoms theology, which they have totally and completely bastardized most of the time. And what they'll really say it means is, when in Rome, do as the Romans. That's really what it'll boil down to. I once had the wife of a Missouri Synod Lutheran minister who was running for office in my home state in the legislature literally tell me that she can behave, if she gets elected, she can behave any way she wants in the legislature to get things done because God's never really revealed in his word how she's supposed to behave if she gets elected, only how she's supposed to vote. So that means... I cross the threshold, I go into the city of man, right? It's like when you, in, in a science fiction movie, where you have to have the, the, the containment chamber when you come in from outer space to get it off you, right, before you go into the gen pop. I cross this line into the Capitol building in Des Moines, and suddenly, God is no longer in charge. And I'm just going to have to figure this thing out, the blind leading the blind, fumbling through the dark on my way through. And if I make mistakes, it's okay because my, you know, my intentions were good, so it doesn't make a difference. And then there's the premillennialists. Like, I love it when I listen to their shows. When I listen to their shows, it's, there was a very popular alt-rock song when I was a teenager called Driving with the Brakes On by Delamitri. Anybody my age remember that song? Okay, That's what, the, that's what premillennialism is in the culture often. We drive while putting our, our feet on the gas and the brake at the same time. Let me give you an example. So I was listening to a show hosted by a gal, a premillennial gal, one day, and she wanted everybody to call the local legislature because they were doing something on a moral issue that she was rightly offended by. And she's really urging all these moms, stay-at-home moms, homeschool moms that are trying to do 27,000 things before breakfast Take 10 minutes out of your day and call out your legislator down at the Capitol. And she makes this 10-minute urgent plea, and then right afterwards she says, but we know that in this Laodicean age of the church, things will just get worse no matter what we do. 
Well, then why are you wasting my time? Why am I doing this? What's the, this is a pointless exercise. I know, you, I know the reform folks always have to hear from the, from the other side, well, you know, why do you evangelize if everybody's predestined, right? How many times have you had to argue against that one, Gabe? 20 million, okay? Well, here's what you should come back at them with. Why are you engaging a culture in a world you think is already lost no matter what we do? Why are we wasting our time? Why are we doing it? See, I think all of these examples of double-mindedness come from the fact we have forgotten the chain of command. God is in charge at all times now. Start there. God is in charge. Like if this was a flow chart, God is in charge. When I first got into t- news talk radio, when I moved over from sports, I said to my management right away, I will do anything you ask me to do, except if you ask me to do something on the air that God says is wrong. If you ask me to do that, um, my answer will be no. Um, and I'll just consider that as your way of firing me. Short of that, I'll work any extra hours you need. I'll do any time slot you need me to do. I mean, I will literally do anything you ask of me. But as Meatloaf once saying, I won't do that, okay? I'll do anything you ask of me. Yes, yes, young people, I am full of Gen X pop culture references you will not understand. And frankly, you are a better person because of it, okay? So... <laughs> I will do anything you ask of me except what God explicit now and explicitly says is wrong. Short of that, you're in charge. You're the company. I'm the employee. That's the chain of command. But there's an ultimate chain of command, right? See, this is something your generation's going to have to learn, probably mine, actually, because we are heading into the criminalization of Christianity era. And you're going to have to learn to say, the magic word a 29-year-old Baptist seamstress said in the back of a, of a bus in Alabama once. No. You're going to have to learn to say this. Ours combined generations will be the first ones in the history of America where we can say Christianity is not the dominant ideology, worldview at stake in the culture. In fact, it's hostile to most of the culture. And so they're going to try to put you in corners we're going to have a lot more Kim Davises, not fewer. Now, the same Paul that says, give honor to whom is due honor in Romans 13. Pay your taxes. Obey the king. Peter says this, almost repeats it verbatim in one of his epistles. And yet, how did those two men, what, what, what happened at the end of their lives? One ended up beheaded. The other one ended up crucified upside down. Now, I'm guessing those things didn't happen because they did everything that Caesar wanted them to do. So those statements are in the context of render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and render unto God's that which is God's. The state can ask for your obedience. It cannot ask for your ultimate allegiance, nor should you grant it ever when it does. You are created in God's image, not in the state's. You are created in God's image, not in a political parties. You are created in God's image, not a tribalistic clan Keep the chain of command. And this is where a lot of friction will come. This will be the hot place right here because the world doesn't want you to have a chain of command unless it's at the top. Number three, know what you can receive, what you're called to redeem, and what you must reject. So let's work our way from the back here. The things to reject are easy. 
We know from the word of God explicitly what we are to reject. Start with the Ten Commandments, for example. So again, I shouldn't have to go through that. That's baked into the cake here. So I want to spend time on the other two while I take a Marco Rubio water drink. What are we called to redeem? And what are we called to receive? Let's start with receive. Say you move to a community like Moscow. Did I get it right? There you go. Say you move to a community like Moscow, Idaho. And it's a progressive college town with your weekend farmer's markets, all the other accoutrements of your progress, your average progressive college town. All of those things, even if all of the people or 99% of the people that created these customs and traditions aren't believers. Well, God made the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike, right? We either believe in common grace and the natural law or we don't. So as long as these things do not compel me to do, that goes back to point number two, the chain of command. As long as any of these local customs and traditions don't compel me to explicitly violate the word of God, I can receive them and use them as natural raw material, not just to get to know people, but to enjoy the blessings of God's creation. I'm sure so there's some great food at your farmer's market. Let's say you move to Valhalla, my relocation mistress, otherwise known as Texas, which my wife is sick of hearing me talk about. The land of no state income tax and no winner, and I'll let you decide which one of those is more important, all right? Let's say you move to Texas. Football is a religion. Well, you know what? If it, as long as that religion doesn't say you've got to do what God says is wrong in order to take part, because it's not really a religion. It's a saying about the zeal of how much they love it as a pastime. When you go into a field, when you go into a community, when you go into an industry, don't be a prude and don't be prey. Okay? Don't be a prude and don't be prey. Understand what the, and you'll do that if you get point number two we went through first, the chain of command. As long as what you're asking me to do doesn't explicitly violate the word of God, then I'm happy being in the, wor in the world. But when you ask me to violate the word of God, then I will remind you I am in the world, but I am not of it. But until you compel me to cross that line, then we can absolutely be friends. Absolutely. Because there's no way you'll redeem, and we'll get to that one here in a second. In fact, we'll get there now. There's no way you can redeem anything without getting your hands dirty. No way. Nothing can be redeemed. Nothing of value can be redeemed without a cost. God got his hands dirty for all of you. Got his hands really dirty for me. He's going to get his hands dirty for them through you. You're going to get some on you. It's unavoidable. This isn't an antibacterial wipe creation. It is fallen. It groans from our sin. And the areas where you will be called to, where you can, and you can always tell, where do we have the most impact where I'm going to have to get my hands the dirtiest? Went on a mission trip a few years ago to Haiti, the poorest country in our hemisphere. And this point really hit home to me in what I saw. It was five years ago, we made that trip right before Christmas of 2013 for a week. And I, I actually ended up going with, uh, through my former employer, Salem Radio Network. 
I ended up going with uh, Stephen Baldwin, the actor, and a small group of people. We all went together. And because we had Stephen with us, who, by the way, was tremendous on this trip. I mean, I, we went into one village where there was literally a domestic battery going on, and Baldwin ran in there like it was a burning building and got right in the middle of it. He didn't play the role of movie star or anything like that. I mean, he acted like a missionary. But because we had Baldwin and some other people with us, we did get to stay at the one really nice hotel in Port-au-Prince. I, I think that's the one Conan O'Brien went to and he was lying to you a few months ago that Haiti's a great place, all right? So it's like this one oasis in downtown Port-au-Prince and then the rest of this, is a, it's, it's not even a third world country. Like the Dominican Republic is like, Haiti's got problems, all right? It, it, it's tragic what we saw there. One of the things I saw there, you talk about getting your hands dirty. One of the people that went with us on this trip is the head of Food for the Poor who sponsored our mission trip. And so he's no shrinking violet. He has been all over the world. He has seen the worst of the worst. But when he saw what I'm about to tell you, I watched him in the middle of the afternoon, a grown man who has gotten his hands dirty on the four corners of God's creation. I saw him break and sob and wail at, what he, at the suffering he witnessed. So we go to this village and a lot of, we went to the off the beaten path places. We had to hike to places, not a lot of roads. Frankly, hiking is safer than the roads in Haiti. Imagine San Francisco's hilly streets with more people and no street lights. It was a harrowing experience. So I was actually relieved when we had to park and walk the rest of the way. But even in December, it's 100 degrees there. We come upon this one village, no water, no electricity, total third world village. And even the locals of this third world village were saying to us, hey, there's somebody you guys need to get to and help right now. And so when you're in this level of suffering and the people that live in this suffering constantly, this is their default setting, when even they are like, uh, we can't, the dude can't abide that. Got to help that person. They're far, they're even far worse off than us. You knew this was bad. And so we went hiking, looking for this woman and we found this elderly woman. She might've been 75 pounds, maybe. And we, she crawled out of her shelter. And when I say crawl, I mean, it was more like a slither. Her shelter of this podium was the ground, was about this far off the ground. And it was made of human and animal waste and trash. Now imagine out here in your progressive college town of Moscow, going across the street to one of the juicers or some of these other shops or restaurants, going out back to their trash dump and making your home their trash. That would be inhumane, we would say, right? Guys, this is Club Med compared to where she lived. She was doing this in the poorest country in the world. Without plumbing, without a lot of the amenities for cleansing, for fighting disease that we just take for granted in the United States. You could, we, we could smell coming over the ridge. We could smell her, her, her shelter, when the wind blew our direction. And... She didn't have the strength to pile it up any higher than this, so it was about this high, just enough for her to slither her little body in there and to keep her safe from extreme heat, storms, etc. And when I saw the head of Food for the Poor break and sob when he saw this, 
The only thing more uncomfortable to a man than a woman crying is when another man starts doing it. It broke me. Because I kind of had the same thought about the villagers, about him, that if this guy who has seen suffering, I can't even imagine, if he is seeing this and he's like, I, I can't, I, I can't reconcile this. I, I get paid well to communicate ideas to you for a living. I, I can't begin to tell you what it was like actually seeing this in person. Those are the things that we are called to redeem. And when you go to a place where the devil is at his worst, like a Haiti, you will not be able to impact them for Christ without getting your hands dirty. So just prepare for that going in. Number four, be what I like to call a three-dimensional thinker. Now, the first dimension is a biblical commandment. I didn't make up this one. This comes right from God's word. This is from Peter. Always have a ready defense for the hope that you have. And what, what is the Greek word that he uses there for defense? Who knows? Anybody know? Gabe's going to buy you lunch if you know. Right, Gabe? <laughs> what is it? Apologia. What, is, what, do we get, what word do we get from apologia? Apologetics. So Peter says, number one, defend. The word of God says, be able to defend your belief system. Can you defend it? And no, the Bible says so is not a defense. Years ago, I listened to a youth ministry conference that Josh McDowell was, was speaking at. And it was thousands of youth ministers around the country. And he got up in front of me and says, I'm just going to ask you guys a few questions. Why is it wrong to lie? And a bunch of youth ministers got up. What do you think their answer was? Because the Bible says so. Then he says, well, why is it wrong to steal? A bunch of youth ministers over on the other side of the arena got up. What do you think they said? Because the Bible says so. Why is it wrong to murder? Over here in this corner of the arena, what did they get up and say? And McDowell stopped him and said, congratulations, you're all legalists. Well done. It's wrong to lie or to bear false witness because God is truth. It is wrong to murder because God is the source of life. It is wrong to steal because God is the source of our provision. We're really, in the Ten Commandments, you're really dealing with a Jehovah 101, a generic, basic revelation of the character of God. And it's only because of the character of God that we do what the Bible says. And the ultimate demonstration of God's character is where? The cross. And if Christ be not raised, then our preaching is in vain and we're all still dead in our sins. So if Jesus doesn't walk out of that tomb... How relevant do we go around telling people because the Bible says so? No. So be, can you defend why you believe what you believe? Barna's latest studies show 9% of self-identified Christians in America have what George considers a biblical worldview. And to define what George considers a biblical worldview, the devil is real, Jesus rose on the third day, Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, the stuff past generations learned in Sunday school by age six. Basically, page one of the New England primer 
If you know your his American history, is what Barna says is a biblical worldview. 9% of American Christians know this stuff. Barna had a stat out yet last week when he first started doing worldview demographics in America back in the early 90s. In 1993, about 96% of Americans, of American Christians, believed, understood what the Great Commission was and believed it. Today, it's less than 50%. Let me put that another way. Less than half of identified American Christians believe or even understand what the initial command of their faith compels of them. Less than half. Is that bad? It's very bad. Very bad. Very bad. Yes. Okay. So number one, can you defend what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? Now we're getting into the areas where my expertise and my lack thereof has failed me. And I'm hoping, as the great prophet Kenny Rogers once saying, promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Okay? So follow in my footsteps going the other direction. <laughs> Second dimension. Okay? Know why other people believe what they believe. Do you know what a Muslim believes? Did you know Jesus is in the Quran? Did you know Mary's in the Quran? You see all these coexist bumper stickers? Past presidents, Republican and Democrats since 9-11 have said we've all worshiped the same God. Well, it's interesting because one group says Jesus was never crucified. The other group says if he wasn't crucified and raised on the third day, I don't have a faith. Other than that, though, we're all worshiping the same God. In fact, do me a favor. Walk down the streets of Amman, Jordan, our favorite moderate Arab nation. And just in the broad of daylight... Scream out, we all worship the same God. Make sure you got Kevlar through customs and you know where the U.S. Embassy is, okay? Then go do it, then try Yemen. No, don't try that, your parents will hate me, okay? Do you know why other, why other people believe what they believe? Do you know where other worldviews are coming from? Any general before he goes, sends troops into war, it's going to do what's called reconnaissance or intelligence. We see this in the Old Testament. Spies are sent into Canaan. Okay? Have you done any recon on the worldviews you're up against? Because I can promise you, they've done their recon on you. Oh, yeah. They know every fake talking point, every false equivalency. They know them all. And they're going to pounce on you day one when you reveal yourself. Do you know where they're coming from? And then the third dimension. And this one is vital so that this doesn't become a contest of wills, but a winning of souls. And trust me, there is a difference. I am as competitive as they come. My children have never just been given anything. I don't let them just beat me at anything, like nothing. Like from the time they came out of their mom, nothing. I would make our oldest, she would cry. I would, make, I would beat her so bad at wiffle ball in the backyard. Until the day she finally beat me, she cabbage patched all the way to the back door, all right? So I, I, I hate losing. Show me someone who's a gracious loser and I'll show you a loser. I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere. Gabe, look that up, please, thank you, okay? I'm as competitive as they come. I originally started, started um, learning the Bible because we'd go back and visit Amy's parents for holidays and her mom was active in the church and she had Bible categories and she would beat me and I did not like that. So I went home for the next four months, man, I read that thing stem to stern. 
accumulating facts. Nothing was changing in here. But boy, next Christmas, I got over. I dusted her. Then I realized, you know, that might not be the point of this. Um, something else going on here. Okay. All right. We're not doing Bible facts. This isn't Bible quiz bowl. These are people with souls. This is heaven or hell. So here's the third dimension. We have to master this. Otherwise, it'll be, you're not the boss of me versus I am the boss of you and heretic. And here we go. Okay. Know why other people believe what they believe about what you believe. Years ago, when I was first being public about my faith, um, after I, I got saved at a Promise Keepers in 2003, we would do, uh, do during the, we would do a shows on Fridays during the off season in Iowa, which means baseball season because there's no Iowa or Iowa State football or basketball, and we would have like a grab bag day, and people would call in on Fridays and bring up any topic, and and I would let people bring up non sports topics, and the issue of gay marriage came up. This was back in 2004, 2005. And my producer, who was named John, and he used to, he, he produced all of my remote shows. And I gave, frankly, if I do say so myself, a pretty terrific rebuke of gay marriage. I mean, I thought it was cash money, homie, but, you know, I, I said, I'm, I love me some me, right? Like, I thought, like, I just destroyed the caller, just destroyed him, who was advocating for this. After the show... My producer, John, comes up, and it's a remote for a radio program, so we've got a crowd of people watching us at this sports bar. And my producer, John, comes up, and he decides he wants to debate me in front of all of my listeners. Well, fellas, what do you think happened, right? Because all dudes are the same. Ladies, learn this. All men, from eight months to the last eight seconds of their lives, all men are the same. What is the game? Who's keeping score? What are the rules? How do I win? That is how we dial up. That's how we diagnose every situation, period. That, that's how a Bedouin man lives. It's how a Christian man lives. That's how we are all the same. Women are all the same and all different at the same time, which is very confusing, okay? But men, men are all the same. When, he said, when you ask him, what are you thinking? And he says, nothing. That's either true or you probably don't want to know, okay? <laughs> And it probably isn't anything tawdry. It's probably like, crap, man, I can't believe we didn't go foot on fourth and one last week. It's probably something like that. And he's dwelling on it on Wednesday. All men are the same. What's the game? What are the rules? Who's keeping score? How do I win? Right? It's what I like to call, with guys, we constantly have to fight the northern and southern hemisphere thinking. And I'll let you figure out what you think the southern hemisphere thinking is a reference to. Okay? So right away, he wants to compete with me in front of other listeners. Southern Hemisphere kicks in like a reflex is a lonely child, Duran Duran. I'm on, all right? And I just destroyed him in front of all these people. And then he said something that destroyed me. He said, but I'm gay. Yeah, that's where the, the live audience who was there for the taping, that's what they did, okay? They're like, ooh, yeah kind of hit home. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, I have totally blown this whole conversation. I did everything Joe warned you about with my ego in the last talk. I did all of that wrong. So help me to not make it worse with whatever I'm going to say next. And I pray that when I open my mouth next, you're going to talk for once in this conversation because I've been doing all the talking up until this point and it's not going well. 
And so I looked at John and I said, John, I was not a virgin on my wedding night. My wife and I lived together before we were married and we weren't in separate rooms. I did everything wrong. I was the first member, firstborn of the porn generation. I did everything God says is wrong. And the only difference, John, between you and me is I have accepted the grace God has offered me to start doing the things he says is right. And that grace is available for you as well. And I just left it at that. And over the next few years, he would test me. Um, he, he would start bringing his partner to golf outings and things when I was doing live remotes, introduce me. And man, I would walk right up there. I gave him the firmest handshake I could. And I just treated him like I would any other man. Because I knew he was waiting to see would I treat him different. Would I treat him like he's less than human. Like he's not made in the image of God. Like he has a scarlet letter. And then on the other side, though, would I let him, while I, was I going to be so worried about mercy triumphing over judgment that I was going to let him change me? I was going to change what I believed. I was going to change my principles. That's a tightrope to walk. You're going to have to walk it. Sometimes you're going to fall off one way or the other. It's like Thomas Wayne says to his young son, Bruce, in Batman Begins, why do we fall? so we can get back up. The Christian life isn't measured by whether or not you have fallen. It is measured by whether or not when God has offered his hand to get you back up, you have reached for it desperately and taken it, or if you've stayed down. That's how the Christian life is measured. Did you stay down, or did you get back up? And we're gonna have all kinds of people, church abuse scandals, priest abuse scandals, one of the leaders of the American mega church movement just got defrocked. We've got an entire, we've got entire channels on my direct TV that are another, nothing other than shakedown artists robbing elderly people of their 401ks and their social security checks in order to incur God's blessing for a healing that's never going to come because they're frauds. And on and on it goes. A lot of people have watched Benny Hinn heal folks when they've only, only when we've taken, heal them, only when we've taken nine offerings. And yet, you never see Benny Hinn just go through a youth ward and just start healing kids in the cancer ward. Why is that? Because he's a fraud. There's a lot of frauds. A lot of fakes. A lot of people that have been burned by this. A lot of people who had a, a father who talked about Jesus and then gave them what for, or worse. And they have these scars. And if we don't understand the premise that they're coming from, yes, generically, we understand. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We don't want to believe. If, I'm, if I am sure of one thing Calvin taught, if my soon to be 45 years on this planet have taught me there's one thing in the tulip that is 100% true, I will defend total depravity to my dying day. I work in politics, I see it every day. But yet, behind the total depravity are hurting people that have been hurt by people claiming they were godly. And they have those scars, they have those misconceptions, 
Are we prepared to heal them or be a part of the healing of where they're at? Do we know that? Or are we going to make the mistake Walter Martin made a little while ago we talked about? Are we going to win the battle? Are we going to win the rhetorical battle and lose the war? Because commandment number one was what? Jesus didn't die for an ideology. Who did he die for? People. People. That's why we have to go to that third dimension. And this ties into commandment number five. Have an open hand for your positions and a closed hand for your convictions and put the right things in each one. Don't major in the minors. Idle arguments about genealogies and other useless talks. Look at the Judah, one of my favorite moments in the scriptures when Paul gets so fed up with the Judaizers and he says, you know, if you guys love circumcision so much, just cut your whole penises off and be especially holy. Don't waste my time. I can promise you, whenever you go to rebuild the wall, whenever Nehemiah goes to rebuild the wall, Sanballat and Tobiah will show up every time. They will show up to distract you. Yeah, but what about this? And what about the the chronology of kings? Doesn't matter. They'll figure something out. Don't waste your time on Sanballat and Tobiah. Keep the sword in one hand, scriptures in the other, do your work. Kick your dust off your sandals, move on to the next town. You don't have time for haters. How do we know the difference between an unbeliever and a hater? An unbeliever doesn't know, a hater doesn't want to know. And they will reveal that for you. They'll tell you up front, we don't want to know. Like the other day when I was on a national television program, they put me on with a guy who ironically believes in an immigration platform that like imports Saudi Arabia here. That's strange. And yet at the same time, accused me of being for a Christian Saudi Arabia. You know what I did live on camera? Took off my ear pierce, walked off. I told him I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this crap. This isn't an adult conversation. I'm not doing this. Go get somebody else to troll. I'm not your fall guy. I'm not your straw man. This is weak. Don't waste my time with this. No one would take this seriously. This guy's a hater. There's no point in having a conversation with him. It's a pointless exercise. That's that's the difference between preaching at the temple, where you can confront false teachers head on in a fair fight like Christ does, or you're in Herod's palace and they just want this show and Jesus sits there and says nothing. Because they're not serious. They're haters. That's why it's key to have the right convictions. And there should really only be a handful of things in this closed hand, guys. Okay? Only a handful of things. Meaning the things that not even for your spouse. Let me talk to the men for a second. The things that even Christ says to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Are you willing to die for her? Even your wife can't talk you out of these things. Because in the end, you will not stand and give an account before your wife for your life. Who you give that account to? God. So these are the things that when you meet your, when you see Jesus eye to eye, when as Luther says, you, have, you, you come back from the second resurrection, you wake up from death, and you see Jesus eye to eye, these are the things you know you could, that you are staking your claim for that moment on these things. But those in this closed hand. These are your convictions. They cannot change. Not that they will not. You don't have permission. They cannot. And then over here in your open hand, these are your positions. They may change. They may evolve. They may matter sometimes. They may not. Sometimes in your life you'll feel strongly about them and others you won't. Sometimes you might believe Bill Belichick doesn't cheat and then other times you might realize that he does and it's okay. These are your positions. Okay? The problem is, you know, there's been a ton of church studies in recent years about why people leave churches. You know what the top two reasons are every time? Doctrine? No, it's never doctrine. <laughs> it's always dress and music every time. 
Dress and music. So let me get this straight. We're arguing about what to wear to go to church to worship a Lord who most of his 33 years on this earth wore clothing our modern age would consider extravagant bath wear. That's what we're going we're to kill each other over this. Meanwhile, the pastor's up here saying, well, maybe Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. I read that in a Rob Bell book. And we're cheering because we think the music's great. Come on, man. Have the right convictions. Fight to the death on these things. And on the positions, fight until you realize you're wrong. And then uh, when you know what, if, you, if you're wrong, admit it and move on. It's not worth arguing about. One more. Do I have time for one more? One more. Then we'll finish this this afternoon. Commandment number six, tradition in its proper context is our friend. Yes, even for Protestants. Now for this room, from those of you from more of a reformed background, I don't have to have this conversation with you. You, you mostly get this. But for a lot of our non-reformed friends, this is a struggle. And as long as we are not saying tradition has an equal authority with God's word, Tradition helps us to realize how others have wrongly or rightly lived out God's commands in this world. We can learn from it. Like I know a lot of us think post 9-11, we're the first generation to ever encounter Islam. John of Damascus was debating sheikhs and caliphs across the world, like in the 8th century or something. So that was when Islam was originally resurging in the world. Wouldn't it be wise, like ladies, I'm sure that grandma passed on some recipes to your mom, she passed them on to you. Guys, I'm sure dad taught you how to play catch and ride a bike. What are, we, what are those things, by the way? What would those things be? Traditions. And why are we passing them on? Because history's revealed them to be good. And we want to bless the next generation with those things. There is nothing new under the sun. Only new people under the sun who have yet to hear it. Everything we will encounter in our modern age, technology aside, but really it's the same debates, just amplified by technology. But all of the things we're encountering today, previous generations, or as Hebrews would write, would say, the, our large cloud of witnesses that have gone before us have faced all of these things already. So why would we not go back and study with the men and women who came before us and face the challenges of bringing the kingdom of God to a fallen world, why would we not go and learn from both their mistakes and their victories? Why wouldn't we learn those things? Much of Protestant Christianity has shunned themselves from these traditions. And I think it's why we fall, like in the New Testament it says, the, the gospel's not about getting rich, guys. 96% of Christian television when you turn it on is about what? Getting rich. I think one of the reasons we fall for so much false teaching is we lack the context that tradition can provide. So when you seek to go into industries, new communities, new parts of the world with your faith, find out what did those who came before me, what did they do right and what did they do wrong? So I'm going to stop there and we'll pick this up this afternoon and I'll be happy to take some of your questions then provided they're snotty. I got to warn you, very rarely are sequels as good as the original, okay? Now, my wife told me that um, she thought I needed to do a better job of explaining the uh, open hand 
and uh, closed hand from the last session. So what I'm going to do is when we get done, if we have any questions and you guys want any clarification on that, I'd be happy to address it, okay? Because the next of our Ten Commandments for culture warriors, well, let's just be honest. It's about sex, so let's just get right to it, okay? That's why everybody's here, right? Commandment number seven. Don't put off adulthood. Get married when you can. Responsibility and commitment are some of your best weapons against temptation. So this is something my wife and I talk about a lot. Uh, she, when she's not uh, educating our kids, uh, she does, she has a master's in biblical counseling. And her specialty is sexual dysfunction. And it ranges the spectrum from sins of commission to sins of omission. From moms who have uh, their daughters call her the night before the wedding night, the homeschool mom who has their daughter call her the night before the wedding night so that she can be told what to expect. By then, sort of a tad late, okay? To the obvious temptations that are rife in our culture today. One of the things my wife and I talk about a lot, and she's not here, she told me she was gonna take a break during the second session. I think what that really means is she saw a sign down the road that said, Antique Mall, and was looking for an excuse. <laughs> so just keeping it real. Anyway, um, we talk all the time about how difficult it would be to be your age or in our 20s, the millennial generation, and be single with the temptations that are replete in our culture today, the idea that, you know, when my wife and I first got married, even when we were first married, we were pagans. And even as pagans, we had a couple non-negotiable rules, like you were not allowed to threaten the other person with divorce unless you really meant it. You were not allowed to threaten the other person with leaving them unless you really meant it. So that we wouldn't use these things against each other and manipulate each other and hold these things over each other's head. Well, nowadays, you know, if things aren't going well and I've been on the couch one night too many, I'll just, you know, jump on Tinder on my phone, man, and correct that real quick, like. And what's happened with how we have warped sexual intimacy is we've gone beyond the temptation that my generation had when we were your age. When I was on the other side of this conversation, the big lie we were told was, wouldn't you want to test drive a car before you bought it? essentially. Now you guys are told, well, as long as the car, the key fits in the car, frankly, even if it doesn't, just drive it anyway. And the lack of boundaries that exist there are one of the most difficult obstacles you're going to encounter as a culture warrior because they're everywhere. You know, there's certain parts of our local mall I don't take my 11-year-old son because, and if you listen to my show, I am no prude. I, I, can, I can give you, well, as Mitt Romney would put it, binders full of women. I could give you binders full of hate mail from Christians telling me I'm not prudish enough. All right? But um, it doesn't mean I don't have any standards. There's parts of our mall I don't take my 11-year-old son to. Because the Victoria's Secret Store has essentially a full-size mural of the kind of girl you give you know, dollar bills to in a seedy establishment, and that's called an ad. And if I do that, 
I've got to have a much more elaborate anatomy conversation with him than the birds and the bees conversation talk him and I have already had. And at 11, he's not ready for that conversation. At 11, there's no need for any kind of sexual awakening to be taking place. You know, I mean, I was at least 13, 14 when I saw Greece for the first time. And when Olivia Newton-John came out in that leather, I suddenly figured out what the whole big deal about the birds and the bees thing was. I was like, it was a eureka, I get it now. Didn't really make much of a, didn't make much of an impact to me. I was playing little league sports year round. This wasn't the sole focus of culture when I was growing up. It is the sole primary, or at least at very least, the primary focus of culture in your era. So let me tell you what the best antidote to this is. Get married. Don't prolong adolescence. You're playing with fire. Right now in America, let me give you an incredible stat. You want to know what the death of the West looks like? It looks like this stat. A 28-year-old man in America today is more likely to be single and living at home with his parents than married with children. 28 years old. 28 years old. 28. When our kids were very little, our oldest, Anna, asked me one day, Daddy, do I have to move out as soon as I'm 18? And she's my little princess, and her little sister Zoe is my little sweetie heart. And she was just, Zoe was just a baby at this time, or about two, three years old. And I said to Anna, I said, hey, you don't have to move out right when you're 18. I mean, you can if you want to, but um, until you're married, if you want to stay here and live here, and provided you're respectful and live under our roof, and, you know, uh, pay your own way, you're welcome to live here. And her little brother Noah was just about two. And right away, man, even at that age, you can, I could feel the testosterone kicking in, right? All of a sudden, his, little, his cute little eyes get real big. And I know what he's thinking, because I was once that little dude. And I told you earlier, all dudes are the same. From eight months old to the last eight seconds of our lives, we are all the same. Right away, that dude is doing the math, and he's thinking... I'm going to play Batman Arkham Asylum here until I'm 50 years old on the old man's dime. That's what he's thinking. Right? And so right away, I got to draw the line. Men and women are equal, but they are not the same. And so I said to my little sweeties, I said, you guys can stay. And then I looked at my cute little son over there. No, I said, boy, you got to go. I know your birthday is in the dead of winter, but I even did this one at these. You got to get out. Get out. Get a job, get a career, go to college, learn a skill, learn how to take care of yourself and a family. Not on my dime. I did my work. You got to go. And when you have a culture where 28-year-old men are more likely to be at home with mom, raise your hand if you think like one-tenth of one percent of those 28-year-old men are virgins. Exactly. There's nobody that's an idiot in here, right? Okay, so I think we know what this means. That's a terrible recipe for a culture. That is prolonged adolescence. That is for we as believers. Why do you think my wife traveled to Moscow, Idaho with me? Because she just thought, you know, the antique mall on Union Street was on my bucket list, so this seemed as good a time as any to check it off. As often as I can, I do not travel without her. I do my best, and I have for years. I have, well, originally my, it was introduced to me as the Billy Graham rule. Now most of you know it as the Pence rule. I do not meet with women alone that I have not shared or swapped DNA with. 
And since I haven't swapped a DNA with a woman in the last 22 years, not named Amy, that means unless we're related, we don't meet alone. That even went for when I had female employees. When our show first started, both of my co-hosts were women. They've since moved on. One moved on because she wanted to become a wife and a mom, and she now is. And another moved on because she wanted to devote more time to being a wife and a mom, and that's what she did. But even then, we would not meet alone. I had, we put those boundaries in place, and they were perfectly okay with it and viewed it as respectful. So if we're going to be as blunt as we can without being graphic, let me just talk to you as adults. There's only so many bullets in a chamber. If indeed you are targeting where they are supposed to go, the odds you're going to expose yourself to temptation decrease dramatically. Not to mention, I got to tell you, the coolest thing I've ever done in my life is become a dad. Absolutely, it's the coolest thing. And watching my 17-year-old now, I think we did too good of a job raising her because she never wants to be home. Oh, I know I'm supposed to take that like an insult, but I'm, I'm taking it totally the other way. Like, I suppose we could take it as she wants to get out from under our roof as quick as she can, but that's like if you're a hater or really down on yourself, how you would view it. I'm viewing it as, wow, look at the independent young woman we raised, right? No, but in all seriousness, it's because she has a life. And knowing that I'm close to the time, I mean, when she was a little baby, that Butterfly Kisses song would come on the Christian music radio station, and I'd be driving home from work, and I'd be sobbing in my car thinking about if I had to do this 20 years from now, we're really close to the time I have to do that, okay? And it's crushing me, right? Zoe, my little sweetie heart, now she's almost to my height when we hug. And Noah, who's my little dude, man, Noah's my bro, except he's a little dude now. So he kind of wants to step to the old man a little bit. Dad, you know what I'm saying, right? So we've had a couple of conversations where those things are concerned and it's, Maybe at some point it will be going well. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I have never done anything better in my life than been a dad. And you're missing out on prolonged adolescence. Especially for the men. We respond to challenges by nature. It's how we were made. We respond to competition by nature. It's how we were raised. Don't put off prolonged adolescence. The more that you are out on the front lines of the culture engaging it, this is a weak area that the culture will look to exploit. How many more Me Too stories do we have to see? How many more? Number eight, and that goes, this goes along with number seven. Know your weaknesses. Some of you are like, what do you mean I have weaknesses? No. Yes, you do. Know your weaknesses and put boundaries in place to protect yourself from them. So I never really had an issue uh, with drinking when I was a pagan. It was funny. Before I turned 21, I drank like a fish. And then when I turned 21 and they told me I could, it just bush light kind of lost its attraction. And I realized this really tastes like crap. Why am I doing this to myself? All right. (laughs) And, and so drinking's not really a big thing for me. I might have a glass of wine once or twice a year. That's Thanksgiving, Christmas, and that's about it. So, you know, going with my unsaved buddies to the sports bar to watch a game uh, is not a big issue. I'm fine ordering the nachos and going home. That might be an issue for you. That might be an issue in your family, maybe something that 
has been a consistent strain in your family life. You should consider how much you should expose yourself to alcohol if indeed that is the case. Maybe you can't just have a beer. I know we're all reformed here, so everybody's supposed to like bourbon, right? Okay, so maybe you can't just have one, right? Maybe you can't do it. Then stay away. Stay very far away. You know, our policy on Halloween at our house has always been our kids are happy to go get as much free candy around the neighborhood with one, with one rule. They are not allowed to dress as anything evil or scary, but only redeemed characters. And the, I made one exception one year for Darth Vader because Noah made the argument that he was redeemed at the end because he's the one who threw the emperor into the shaft. And although I didn't really buy his argument, I truly wanted to give him points for that level of initiative, and I wanted to reward him for masculine ingenuity, so I gave in, okay? Um, so provided, you know, you can dress like your favorite characters and people want to give you candy, um, I don't really see an issue with it. I mean, the devil's been trying to secularize our traditional days for eons. It's about time we make, you know, if you think it is the devil's day, well, we're going to make it about pretty little princesses and cute little princes. We're going to do that, and we're going to hand out candy. Now, if you come out of an occult background, that might be something you want to completely stay away from. So what are your weaknesses? What is, as the writer of Hebrews says, what is for you the sin that so easily ensnares? Which is it? Is it the red light district on the internet? What is it? Know what your boundaries are. I can promise you the enemy does. I can promise you he does. And if indeed you are a threat, because see, I think really one of our individual goals is when we're done here, we want demons in hell to wipe the sweat off their brow, glad we're dead. Because maybe their life's a little bit easier today. So... If you're a threat, they're already game planning for you. They're watching to see what are your entry points, what are your weak points, what can we exploit. Be aware of your weaknesses. I work in a field called politics where self-awareness is like dead if you ever go to Twitter. Right? Like one person will literally condemn something they will champion in the very next tweet. And you're an intolerant bigot if you point out that that just seems contradictory. Okay? So self-awareness is dead in the world I, I live in in politics. But for the culture warrior, we need to be very self-aware. What are our boundaries? And put them in place to protect ourselves from our weaknesses. Number nine. This is something I've said to our oldest daughter recently because she is a performer. Uh, she had the lead. She played Tracy in Hairspray at the Civic Center last fall. She has a lot of friends that are non-Christian friends. And at first, because I'm a dad, I almost, I tried to not to freak out about that. And then I realized if I freak out about this, the odds she will succumb to this subculture will actually go up. That I need to trust, we did the best with her we can do, and she's close enough to adulthood now. By nature, God granted her the power at this age to give birth should she get pregnant. There's no greater adult responsibility than the power to give birth. My mom was 15 when she had me, 15. And that's when I made the decision, you know what? It is time to see if we did this right remotely. So at some point, she's going to have to interact with this great big world out there. Might as well find out now. And I've been amazed to see she does a far better job 
than I do. Some of the things I've told you in the first session, I actually learned from observing her. Watching the way she is able to love on and carry on with people of a different belief system, she hasn't sacrificed her values whatsoever. She's not perfect, don't get me wrong. But she has managed to walk this narrow road. And one of the things I've encouraged her with, because she wants to maybe think about going to New York, where someone with her talent and skill set, that's obviously one of the primary places to go. And one of the things I've encouraged her with is find a local church that can be a sanctuary for you. Because you don't want all your friends to be that subculture either. You know, it's really hard to go ye into all the world when like none of your friends are in the world. Like, well, all my friends are Christians, but I'm also going to impact the world for Christ. Uh, who's going to tell them, right? I mean, how do you impact the world for Christ if everybody you know already has been impacted for Christ? But on the other hand, you don't want to go to the other extreme either. If you have no lifeline back to the church, then the proverb, bad company corrupts good character, will come into play. Notice that I'm not giving you any binary choices through these. Have you guys noticed that? There's like no Trump, Hillary, Lady or the Tiger choices. No Hobbes choices. Like We're not playing Russian roulette. Okay? Meaning we're not, hey, choose which gun you prefer to be shot with. Do you prefer uh, being kneecapped or throat slit? I'm not giving you any of the false choices the world will offer you. I'm trying to offer you a third way right down the middle, the narrow path. Because this is a narrow road and we're going to have to learn to negotiate it and navigate it as we go along. And one of the keys will be no matter where you're at or where it is that God places you to bloom where you're planted, do you have a sanctuary, a small group, a church that will not just be biblical and orthodox, but will encourage your calling? Will they encourage you to do it? You know, one of the things I've seen in politics, by the way, and I've, I've had this conversation with many pastors over the years. I've, I'm going to lay out for you what I've told them. Young man, maybe about you guys' age, meets a girl in the youth ministry in a year or two, comes up to the pastor and says, you know, I, I'd like to ask her to marry me, but I didn't, I'm not really, you know, my parents were divorced. My mom was a single mom. I didn't really see a good example of what a husband looks like in the home. Can you disciple me according to the word of God, what God expects of me to be a good husband? And any pastor worth his salt will absolutely do it. And then maybe after they get married, a few years after they get married, or maybe nine months after they get married, never know, uh, the same guy goes back to that same pastor and says, you know, I'm going to be a dad. And I had no father in the home. I had no good example in the home. Can you help me, disciple me, mentor me according to God's word, what, kind of, what, what it means to be a good father? And again, any pastor worth his salt will do that. Maybe a few more years go by and now you're successful in whatever industry or, or calling you have and you have money and now you want to be a good steward. But again, you know, you had a single mom, you were living paycheck to paycheck, you don't know what that means. You go back to that pastor one more time and ask him, hey, can you show me what it means to be a good steward according to the word of God? And that pastor again will say, of course. And then maybe a few more years go by and now you got more salt than pepper. Okay? Maybe your kids are grown or they're about to be. And now you're not looking back as much as you're looking ahead. What kind of world am I going to leave behind for my grandchildren? And you think, you know, maybe God's calling me to run for office. 
And you go back to that exact same pastor who helped mentor you according to the word of God on what it meant to be a good husband, a good father, and a good steward. And you say, hey, what are the do's and don'ts? What's God expect of me if I run for office? As I run, if I get elected, what am I supposed to do? Nine times out of 10, that exact same pastor will look at you and say, we don't do politics in the church, so call this other parachurch organization and they'll help you. You didn't ask him to do politics in the church. You didn't ask him to take a position on an issue. You didn't ask him to take a position on a you know, Canadian health care plan or what the zoning rules ought to be for sidewalks down the street. You asked him to disciple you on a matter of character and integrity and responsibility according to the word of God. So this happens a lot. It's why we are not good collectively as a church at doing what we actually believe because we have often theoretically taught God's word, not so much practically. And now we're not even teaching it theoretically very well anymore. But practically, what does this mean? You know, he gave this huge big sermon on sexual integrity. But my wife and I haven't, haven't been with each other in months. We're not getting along. It's Tuesday, 48 hours later. There's this single woman at church or at work. She's asking me to lunch after she asked me out for a drink. I think she's attractive. I think I know why she's asking me out. Tell me right now, church, when I'm in this moment of temptation right now, when the enemy has his hooks in me right now, when I am poised to make a decision that may change the trajectory of my life and the life of the people around me, tell me right now what that theoretical sexual purity you were teaching me, tell me what it means right now in a real world situation. Can you tell me that? Because often we can't. Okay, so um, our rights come from God. That's great. But I've got a single mom over here with four kids because the baby daddy ran out on her. She can't afford health insurance. And the government is asking her to, um, uh, you know, hey, if you vote for us, we'll make sure you have health care. And it's the same people that are making this promise to her are the same people saying, well, if you want to acknowledge God publicly, we don't allow that. And we might even uh, punitively punish you if you're a baker or a florist. Well, I mean, she probably thinks that's bad. Doesn't want that to happen to that baker and florist. She'd probably also like to make sure her kids can go to the doctor if something's wrong at the same time. And now she's stuck. This sounds really good theoretically. How do we handle this practically? Because these are the real world dilemmas we're going to face. Remember the conversation we had last time I spoke in the morning? Where my former producer came up to me. We were having this theoretical debate about gay marriage. And then what did he say to me? Do you guys remember what he said? I'm gay. Oh boy. Stuff got real, real quick then. This wasn't a theoretical conversation. Because I can promise you, when you're out of here and out into the adult world, the time for theoretical conversations will be at an end. You'll look back and wish. When your parents say, don't be in a hurry to grow up, you want to know what that means? They wish they could still be having theoretical conversations. Because right now, it's all practical now. And if you don't have a church that will encourage you in that calling, will practically equip you in that calling, sooner or later, in the end, if you give out more than you take back in, that's a dangerous place to be on the front lines of the culture. That again, you can have burnout. That can leave you susceptible to temptation. So if you're gonna go to some place, I wanna work in the tech industry, so I gotta go to Silicon Valley. 
Uh, the guy who's the VP at Goldman Sachs, who's the NSA grad, um, invites me to be his administrative assistant. Scout, where's the good churches at down there? Where are they at? Because there's always 7,000 men in Israel who haven't taken the knee to Baal yet. There's a good church everywhere. Might be harder to find in some places like others, like, say, New York, okay? But there's a good one everywhere. But look, look to find what's going to be my lifeline. What's going to keep me connected? Don't, and, and I'll just do this on my own. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That always works, never. Okay? We are made in the image of a God who is in and of himself a relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is a relationship in and of himself. This is why we crave relationship maybe more than anything else. So make sure you belong to a church. If you want to indeed leave a mark, if you want to be that person that when God calls you home, hell says, I'm glad they're gone. They were a pain in our gluteus, okay? You want to be that person? That's a great end game goal. But you're going to need supply lines, encouragement, love, support, accountability. You're going to need that on the path of getting there. So be intentional and strategic about finding a local church that is supportive of your calling, not just orthodox, small o, in its preaching. And then finally, number 10. Just as we started this off with the ultimate premise, to remember that Jesus died for people, not for an ideology. Jesus died for sinners. Let us remember the ultimate goal here is conversion that leads to transformation. We are not looking to create morally proper paganism, cultural hegemony, or homogenization. That's a big difference, for example, between conservatism and nationalism. So a lot of people talking about nationalism nowadays. Conservatism says, you know, I'm a patriot because of the themes that have made my country worthy of being a patriot for, and I want to see those values conserved for this and future generations. A nationalist says, for the fatherland, love it or leave it, we don't care about hegemony. We don't care about homogenization. We're not opposed to diversity. We just think paganism isn't diversity. We think it's dumb. Those are two totally different things. But your style of music, the way you like to dress, the color of your skin, your dialect, your native customs, there is neither male nor female nor Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free in Christ. In Christ. So our goal here is conversion, leading to transformation. This is also the difference between I want to preserve what made America exceptional because historically for the last 240 years, other than the Church of Jesus Christ, when America has stood for that which made her exceptional, she has been the biggest instrument for human good in this world. On the other hand, if she's no longer going to stand for those things, then it's just a flag. It's just a country. That's all. It only means something when it means something. We're not idolaters. We don't worship symbols or monuments. 
as believers, we are into defending and conserving the values those things stand for when they stand up for what God says to stand up for. Nothing more, nothing less. I once asked my audience, if America went away, how many more people would be in hell? What do you think the answer to that question is? Guess. It's a really no number. Zero. 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 We don't go to the church of John Calvin, and we don't go to the church of George Washington. Both great men, much to be admirable, to admire. And they would also be men. This is a great country. It's also a country. And when it stands up for the values that it frankly borrowed from the church and emulates them, we should defend it with all of our might. And when it doesn't, we shouldn't. One thing is a fully developed worldview. The other is an idolatry of country. One of the reasons why you're watching, and I know you're struggling with it. You and I were just talking about this out in the, out in the hall. One of the reasons why you're watching your parents and grandparents, and you're struggling with reconciling it, why are they voting for a bunch of candidates who are outright hedonists and liars? Why are they doing it? And acting as if, well, if this person doesn't win, America's over. And you're like, why did I listen to all those lectures at the dinner table if you guys were just going to turn around and do this? I can get that stuff from the pagan parents. And their, kid, their, and their kids have more fun than I'm allowed to have. We saw this huge divide in the church in the last election. If you were 50 or over, more than likely, you enthusiastically and voted for Trump. If you were 34 to 45, or 30 to 45, you still likely probably did, but you really didn't feel good about it and only did it because the other woman said, I'm a communist, openly. And then if you were under 30, you were like, uh, that is like everything my parents lectured me throughout my childhood not to become. I'm not voting. I can't, we can't do that. There was a great article one of the Benham brothers wrote about when him and his father Flip, who's a great man of God, by the way, and his teenage son, who was 18 and voting in his first election, they all went out to the big evangelical confab in New York at Trump Tower that Trump had in, in, May, in June of 2016 after he clinched the nomination. And Flip, the dad from another generation, who has seen as so much of, of what made America exceptional drift away, was adamant that we had to vote for Trump. And that was his generational perspective. Now, this, this Benham brother was roughly my age, and he was like, you know, I'm probably going to vote for Trump so the, the red menace who dresses like Benny Hinn doesn't win, but... Um, I really don't feel great about it, but in this world we all have many troubles and sometimes the trouble is we have terrible choices. And then he went to his 18-year-old son who was gonna vote for the first time. First words out of his mouth were, Dad, we're never voting for that, right? You realize everything we just saw here was a total scam. That's like everything you ever taught me, this is a repudiation of. So we have to remember, in the end, um, we're not here to save the United States of America. We're here to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. 
and you want to save a country, whether it's the United States of America or the United States of Schmuck Erica, proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. No name of Jesus Christ, there would have never been a United States of America. Why? Well, because the people that came over here and started it jumped on that rickety boat, half of them died, and then another half of them died the next two winters because they wanted to come here to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is how you save this culture and every culture. No culture will be saved without Jesus Christ, as will no soul. There is no atonement outside of Christ. There is no name under heaven by which a culture or a person can be saved. Proclaim Christ in all you do. And then the results will just kind of take care of themselves. Again, want to thank uh, the folks out at the Called Conference for having me out there to speak in, in just absolutely beautiful, gorgeous Moscow, Idaho. And that's Spokane, Washington, that part of the country lives up to the hype. It is beautiful. And let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And if you have a moment, please click subscribe there on iTunes and Stitcher or even leave us a positive review. So many of you have done that. And the more of you that continue to do so, that helps us to grow and get the word out about our podcast. Tomorrow is a Feedback Friday. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like you.